Hey, I'm Asher. And I'm Jackson. And what you're about to listen to is Strictly Confidential. Hey, Asher, how's your week been? My week's been great, Jackson. I've been out in the park taking photos of orbs. Yeah? (laughs) I think I speak for everyone when I'm going to say I'm going to need you to expand on that. Well, I've been trying to prove the existence of ghosts, of course. I don't feel like I should explain myself. Okay, yeah. (laughs) And everyone knows that the eternal spirit takes on the form of an orb, and you can catch them on photos. So this is how you're spending your new 2019 fresh year? This is me actually following my New Year's resolutions. Yeah? What's your New Year's resolution? Because I've got a good one for me, but I want to hear yours first. I want to discover my own conspiracy. But uh, my search for the existence and proof thereof has actually led me to meeting someone who is much more educated in this field. But before we get to that, I want to ask how your week is going. My week's going pretty well. My, uh... My New Year's resolution was to start saying specific new phrases to brand myself differently as a person. Okay. I've tried to do New Year's resolutions that are a little too ambitious or too hard to grasp. And so this year I'm taking it simple and just all I want to do this year is start saying, catch these hands more often. (laughs) Okay. Like anyone who disagrees on this can catch these hands. Like, okay, a little more threatening. I want to be a little bit more aggressive this year, but only by using that phrase. Other than that, I, I want to stay pretty much the same guy. Like, I can't believe I haven't said this on this show yet, but Paddington 2 was my favorite movie of last year. And if you disagree, <laughs> you can catch these hands. <laughs> Although I guess it would be hard to disagree with it being my favorite movie of last year. I'll rephrase That's that. That's a good point. The best movie of any year. So go back to your uh, ghost hunting. How's that been going? Yeah, as I obnoxiously teased at the top of the show, I got to sit down with Jessica Just, friend of ours, friend of the show, about ghost photography and the origins thereof. I really don't want to set it up much more because she's far more interesting than I am. So we can go ahead and just get it started. Well, I'm sitting down here with a psychic medium. (laughs) I'm going to learn... About my future. <laughs> it's a very dark room. There's a crystal ball. And I have Jessica Just here, uh, who's not going to do any of the things I just promised. Tell the audience who you really are. My name is Jessica Just, as Asher just said. And I am in my last semester of my MFA in photography. So that means I'll have my master's and I can begin teaching college-level photography classes. So it's something I really love and I'm really excited to talk about. Now, we don't talk about <laughs> art on this show. We talk about spooks and scares and conspiracy. So where can these two topics intertwine? We're going to be talking about ghost photography and the spiritualist movement. So I'm sure you're wondering what that means. Um, so during the 1840s, the spiritualist movement was a huge thing, and it was a belief that the spirits of the dead exist and have both the ability and the inclination to communicate with the living. So this was really rampant up until the 1920s, and it was a time where the psychics, mediums, seances, or any ghost or spirit communication was in its heyday. 
And it was really pushed forward with the Civil War happening since so many people were losing their loved ones and willing to do anything to communicate with them again. So a lot of the mediums and psychics and photographers would prey on the people to, in order to make a buck or to push photography as a commodity and come up with all of these tricks and to make their business thrive and to make some people feel better along the way. So you use the word rampant and also prey on what sounds like victims. <laughs> this is almost certainly a negative thing or what would you say, is this an epidemic or is this just part of the emergence of a new art form? I'd say it's kind of both. Um, a lot of photography was really new around the 1840s. So photographers and chemists were kind of inter interchangeable as far as the term goes. And so they were really experimenting with new ways to make photography and different chemical combinations in order to create a new way of making an image. On one hand, you have a legitimate business trying to experiment and make something that will last. And on the other hand, you have them looking for any way to make money. But it did make a lot of people feel better. And it was really important to some people. And whether that was true or not, the photography business of photographing ghosts, it was still really meaningful for some people. When we think of ghost photography now, you kind of jump to the Discovery Channel, Ghost Hunters, <laughs> Real Life Ghost Adventures. But this actually had a much more sincere Ghosts weren't nearly a, a just like intended to be scary. This wasn't people desperate to prove the existence of ghosts. There wasn't really any scrutiny of this photography. These were tools of condoling people who had recently lost loved ones. Yeah, so ghosts at this time weren't really this ter these terrifying, um, you know, out to get you beings. They were human as far as they could be human they were just removed but i don't want us to get ahead of ourselves this is e something that's really easy to get excited about is there any specific example or photographer or photograph that is particularly famous that you can use to exemplify this entire spiritualist movement and yes that's a leading question because i already know you have something prepared Yes, and that would be Mumler's photo of Mary Todd Lincoln and the ghost of Abraham Lincoln. This goes all the way to the top. It goes all the way to the top. Presidency. Conspiracies. Yes. That's what we're about here. Now we're talking. <laughs> in the 1860s, there was a photographer named William Mumler. Um, he was based in Boston, and he was an engraver turned photographer, and he was known around the U.S. as the man who could photograph the dead. He really started um, fiddling around with different photographic processes, and he was taking a self-portrait, and it went wrong, and he noticed a ghostly image of someone who looked like his cousin hovering in the background, and it just so happened that his cousin had died 14 years earlier. So that was his revelation into figuring out that he, too, could photograph the dead. Well, we don't know if he actually knew that he was photographing something that happened to be a double exposure, or if it was something that he truly believed he could photograph the dead. Because photography was so new, nobody really understood that there was science behind the process. So usually when someone invents something on an accident, you end up with something like a slinky or silly putty. But <laughs> this guy was like, oops, I can contact the dead now. And I get, if he had legitimately believed that he had found a way to connect with the afterlife, that's pretty exciting. It may not have even been an immediately something to turn into a business venture. 
But you said the word double exposure, and even that is something that's kind of foreign to us now in the world of digital photography. So can you break down the bare basics, like you're explaining to a chimp so that I can understand how photography was developed and how something like this could have even happened on accident? At the very basic level of double exposure, it are two images stacked on top of each other in the negative form. Back then, glass plates were used instead of the traditional plastic film roll that we see every day. Um, well, not every day. We used to see it every day, but now we're in the digital world. What would have happened probably is he would have exposed one of his glass plates and then accidentally recoded it and exposed again on top of it. Um, so that way, when it's developed, you see two latent images layered over each other rather than just one. And now, if you wanted to shoot film or maybe a digital image to get a double exposure, you would just reload the film, shoot over the roll that you just shot again, or there's some settings on cameras where you can make that happen. Or just, you know, we have Photoshop now, so it's really easy. So, one day, this woman walks into the shop. She's wearing a black dress, mourning a shroud over her face. She goes to sit down and he asks her to sit still because back then exposure times were at least a minute long because back then it took way longer to take a photo. So she sits and she removes her shroud and they begin the exposure in order to contact her long lost love, her husband. The plate develops and it is none other than Abraham Lincoln resting his hand on her shoulder. <laughs> Yes. Yes. So how did this happen? Did he already know Mary Todd Lincoln? Did she contact him before? Or did he just happen to, you know, appear out of nowhere in the photo? So let's talk about how he might have actually gotten these ghosts to appear. So today we have a much better idea as to how he may have done the sittings because Mumler's fraud was discovered after he put identifiable living Boston people in the photos as the spirits. So people were beginning to recognize living people in the photos as posing as the spirits. He had some actors um, on reserve to hide in the next room whenever he was getting his subjects ready to be photographed for their exposure. And keep in mind, the exposure times were at least a minute long. So when they were sitting there, really rigid, had to stay really still, eyes wide open or closed, depending on how he would have done it, the actor would come into the room, dressed up, based on the description they would give before they sat for the photo, stand in the frame for part of the exposure time, and then walk out, leaving a very ghostly image. So because they weren't in the frame as the same amount of time as the person sitting, they would not appear as a full-fledged body. And that seems the most likely, and it's definitely a solution that, that is simple, but at the same time, I mean, obviously, having photographic proof of ghosts would be the most amazing. But all mysticism removed, this is just an example of incredible coordination on their part. It's the immediate response that makes this so fooling and so incredible that the production was even possible. To have a repertoire of actors basically stage left along with a wardrobe, and within the amount of time that they're sitting there and they've described their recently deceased, being able to shamble together this ensemble. Another way that this could have happened was by Mumler placing a previously prepared glass plate featuring the image of the deceased into the camera in front of an unused plate, which was then used to photograph the client sitting in the chair. Pretty similar to the first time that this was quote-unquote discovered. So right. th there's already a half-baked image 
before they even get there. And once they sit down, it's just layered on top of the other photo. Right. Um, And some people are still convinced today that it is real because a lot of people still cannot replicate the way he photographed these images. And there really isn't a definitive answer for how he did it. Some people think that because Mumware used to be an engraver, that he might have used some engraving processes. Um, and that gets more into like printmaking, which I won't go into, but there is some overlap between engraving and photography. Okay, so we have a theory now, and it's pretty simple, but there is a slew of photography during this period of time that is still difficult to explain. When you have the understanding that Photoshop is was 100 years away from existing, then you have to have very physical solutions to how these images were constructed. If they're not just collages, how did that get there? Again, there was a version of Photoshop before Photoshop, which involved um, people altering the image with chemicals or with brushes to make their eyes look wider or awake or little tricks of the camera to make certain things happen. But now there really are some photos that are unexplainable. There are still some photos that Mumler has done that people can't um, explain. Um, In 1936, there's a photo called the Brown Lady of Random Hall. And there's a ghostly form floating down the stairs. And some people think it's the figure of a Lady Dorothy Townsend, who is said to have haunted the hall ever since her mysterious death in 1726. Um, And a lot of people think that this is authentic. But some photographers think it may have been caused by the camera being shaken during a long exposure. And there are plenty of photographers out there who do believe that you can capture spirits on camera. So if you feel like you have a ghost in your house, take a picture and send it to us. And we can, we, <laughs> we can see if we can figure out what you did or if it's real. If you go ahead and Google the fairy photos of the 1920s, you can see... Um, girls sitting in a garden with fairies dancing around them or presenting them with gifts. And to our very modern eye, we can obviously see that there's something up with these photos, right? They don't look 3D at all. They look very 2D, um, very childlike, almost if, you know, they were cut out of something or, you know, layered on top of something else or cut and paste, if you will. But people at the time, like, had no way of knowing that this was possible with photography. And it really wasn't like they were really accepted as these amazing photos that can't be explained and revolutionary and um, nothing could compare until 1978, where someone pointed out that the fairies in the pictures were very similar to the figures in a children's book called Princess Mary's Gift Book, which had been published in 1915, shortly before the girls took the photographs. (laughs) The only difference was they probably sketched over the original drawings and cut them out or just traced them. And that's the only difference. But the poses remain the same. Um, And some people were like, oh, well, you can't see them through the paper. They have to be objects. Well, they could have, you know, put some cardboard behind there or something. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, you know how Star Wars Episode One used to look amazing? Like it was groundbreaking uh, special effects. Right. And now we've, as like as film goers, we've seen better special effects. Mm. And now Star Wars Episode One looks terrible. Like the CG is obviously computer generated garbage, but at the time it looked so real. Right. And it's 
really bizarre to see to go back to something that felt so real and then see the pixelated mess of CG. And I think that we have to give people of the 1920s who are fooled by these photos a little bit of credit because it's easy to write them off as dumb and willing to believe anything. If you have not seen visual effects more convincing than this, then by definition, this is the most convincing spiritual photo you've ever seen. Right. You know what I mean? You wouldn't jump to the conclusion that they're paper cutouts because no one's ever thought to do that. And speaking of something that's so amazing and, you know, something that is amazing to them and that is really pixelated to us, um, it reminds me of a short film. The Myth of the Runaway Train movie in an 1896 short film called The Arrival of, of a Train at La Ciotat. And it's a 50-second long silent film. And it was a pioneering set of brothers who were among the very first people to create moving pictures. So what was revolutionary and really astounding about this film was there was a train zooming towards the screen to the people in the audience and people scrambled and tried running out of the theater because they thought the train was going to break through the screen and kill them because they had never seen anything like that before. Something that film, both moving and still, has really done for the history, um, for the history books in general, has really pushed what we um, take to accept as truth. From the beginning of photography, people have been manipulating it to let to make people see what they want to see, or to make people see something that is the ideal version. I mean, we have so many examples of which takes us all the way back to the beginning and the sudden rise of ghost portraiture. And it proposes the deeper question, is this a bad thing to do? <laughs> it's kind of, I mean, it's manipulative for sure. They're exploiting someone's emotions to make a profit. But if the person who receives that photo gets a genuine sense of peace and closure from it, even though it's a lie, was this a detriment or was this a benefit to this quote unquote sitters who are a part of these seances? Eventually, Mumler did get caught, and he did have to go to trial, and even P.T. Barnum, the famous um, ring, ring man of a circus, uh, testified against him. He's like, he's a charlatan, and I should know because I am one too. His reputation was ruined, and people still came to him for spiritual photography. So it really wasn't a matter of, is this real or not? It's, this is something that will make me feel better. And that's pretty cool to look at, too. But the question of, like, is photography ethical when it comes to manipulation is still something we talk about so much today. Back when National Geographic was first introducing photographs to their magazines, there was this photo of the pyramids in Gaza, and they were perfectly symmetrical. It was a black and white image, and they were all evenly spaced in these huge looming things. And people were like, I'm going to go there. I'm going to photograph that for myself. I want to see that. And they would go, and the pyramids were not that close to each other, and they were not symmetrical. And they had cut pieces of images together to put them into one to make it look better. The question really is, like, where's the line? Is there a line? Does there need to be a line? You know, if people, if it makes people excited, if it makes people feel good, why does it matter? But I'll let you decide. Oh, man. <laughs> well, Jessica, thanks so much for sitting down with me and teaching me a little bit about the origin of ghost photos. Now I can watch Ghost Hunters and be even more disappointed seeing how far it's fallen. Now, if someone wants to learn more about Mumler and the origins of this spiritual movement, do you have any recommendations for something they can read, something they can watch? 
Yeah, I mean, if you're really interested in Mumler specifically, there's a great book um, called The Apparitionists, A Tale of Phantoms, Fraud, Photography, and the Man Who Captured Lincoln's Ghost. Um, But if you're just plain old interested in the old-fashioned ways of photography and how they may have captured this, you know, just get online, look up some resources, or um, if you live in the good old state of Texas, the um, Harry Ransom Center at UT Austin has the first photograph ever taken, and they have a lot of great stuff there if you would love to go check that out, or if you just have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email or contact me on my Instagram. It's just.a.jessica. Okay, can we talk about how good that was? Thank you again, Jessica. That was awesome. And Jessica was without a doubt the better half of that interview. But can we also briefly mention you are an excellent interviewer? Oh, really? Yeah, I think you I mean, you do a spectacular job of asking good questions. And it's just thanks, man. It's a delight to be a part of this. (laughs) That genuinely makes me happy that you that you would say that I appreciate it. And I realized after the interview that she suggested you email her, but didn't actually say her email. So that will be in the show notes in the description and definitely give her a follow on Instagram. She's got a photo exemplifying the process that she talked about in the show. Really want to check that out so you can see the authentic process that Mumler would have done himself. Yeah, I don't have anything beyond that. That was awesome. As always, thanks to Glenn Merle for our theme song. That's Threadbare off the album of Burn and Proof. Check him out at glimrollmusic.com, iTunes, Spotify, any place you stream music. He's probably there. Uh, If any of you guys want to be on our show or have something you want us to talk about or want to talk about yourself on the show, I guess that's the same as the first option. Our email is strictlyconfidentialshow at gmail.com. And then our social media, as we mentioned a second ago, if any of you guys send us ghost photos, we'll post them there. But we're always trying to post about what the episode is so that you don't have to leave any app you're already on to see what we're talking about. Our Instagram is Strictly Confidential Show, at Strictly Confidential Show is how uh, that works. And then our Twitter is at S Confident Show. If you enjoy our show, tell your best friend to listen. Word of mouth is the best way that this podcast grows. And if you like it and you guys are friends, they'd probably like it too. Oh, and I had a, I had somebody emailed us uh, in response to one, a question we had. And I wanted to okay. sh- share that. Let me get to it. This comes from our friend Abel Castro from a couple months ago. And he's uh, he said, hey, y'all, my name is Abel Castro and I've been a loyalish listener for a hot minute. I'm still in college, so I fall behind on my podcast. But now that I'm done with the semester, I've had time to catch up on old episodes. He says sodes, which is way cooler than episodes. I was just listening to the Hammersmith Ghost episode on October 8th. Towards the end of the episode, Jackson talks about color and if it's possible for there to be differences in the way we perceive color and if that all would be testable. And I'm, he, he says, I'm here to tell you that it is. I'm majoring in neuroscience, and in my sensation and perception class, we had a few units on color. The question of potentially seeing different colors is an old one, and a clever method was developed to examine it called metametric matching. Essentially, people are presented with two colors, for example, cerulean and turquoise, and then they have to manipulate the red, green, and blue values to make those mat- make the turquoise match the cerulean. Oh, interesting. Okay. And so if any differences are actually being perceived, then the results between each person will vary. And he puts a link to a website where you can test that. And so I'll uh, 
put that in the description of this episode too. He says, Jackson mentioned the mantis shrimps, which is objectively the baddest of all the crustaceans. While humans have three photoreceptors, cells in the eyes that are stimulated by light, they are able to be affected by either green, red, or blue light. And it is believed that mantis shrimps have anywhere from 12 to 16 different ones. As if that wasn't sickening enough, they can also punch like a truck. <laughs> so uh, we might we might have this guy on the show at some point, but he uh, I'll put that link in the description below. But if you guys have extra information on anything we're talking about, we would love to provide that to our listeners as well. Yeah, feel free to correct us. Thanks a bunch for that information. And also, thanks for answering Jackson's question earlier for what new lingo I'm going to adopt in 2019. It's definitely SODES. But uh, until next time, I've been Asher. And I've been Jackson. And you've been listening to Strictly Confidential. And as always, keep snapping. Them photos. Them photos.